Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we're here with a dear friend of mine that I've been looking forward to having on the Think Biblically podcast for a long time. Christopher Yuan is the author of a couple books, one of them that I gave to my wife and she passed to all of her friends, uh, which is the first book that you wrote, Christopher, I think is wonderful, Out of a Far Country. And then today we're going to talk about your book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, which just released. So Christopher, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, Sean. I also want to mention that you speak regularly and also teach at Moody Bible Institute, clearly a friend institute of Biola. Well, yeah. let's start by taking back, taking you back to 1993. You mentioned that's when you announced to your parents that you were gay. Will you walk us through that story and really to where you got today? Yeah. So, I, Sean, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Uh, but I wrestled with my sexuality, and I kept it hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. I came out of the closet. So I'm from Chicago. I came out of the closet when I was I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. I was pursuing my doctorate of dentistry there, and I came out of the closet, told my parents, and what's so that kind of through that crisis, my parents actually came to faith. And it's really interesting because initially. As unbelievers, my parents rejected me, and it wasn't until after they became Christians that they actually loved me with the love of Christ, which is the complete opposite of the narrative that we hear today, that uh, Christian parents uh, reject their gay children. Well, I had the exact opposite experience. Well, they came to faith. Um, I still wanted nothing to do with them, nothing to do with their newfound religion, and I went the opposite direction. I was like I said, a you know, student. Um, I was partying like with all my other classmates. Unfortunately, I got involved in drugs. I need to clarify: not all gays and lesbians do drugs. It is certainly part of my story as I tell it. Um, and it, uh, I unfortunately started doing drugs. I started selling drugs. I was expelled from dental school just three months before I was supposed to receive my doctorate. Wow! And I moved to Atlanta. And I kept doing what I knew how to do best, uh, sell drugs. But my parents were praying for a miracle. They didn't even know the extent that I was, you know, doing in drugs. But they knew that I needed to know Jesus Christ. So they prayed for that miracle. That miracle came with a bang on my door, and I was arrested. Um, I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. So I was facing 10, 10 years to life. And it was there in prison. I found a Bible in the trash can, and I began reading it. I mean, not... <laughs> Not thinking, you know, hey, this is going to change my life. I really just thought, you know, I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> I've got to pass this time somehow. And I, I read it. it. But, you know, as we know, God's Word, it, it, it's, it's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And, and it convicted me initially not just not about sexuality, but just of my own rebellion against God, against, you know, doing drugs, rebelling against my parents. And um, it was when God was really moving in me and convicting of my sin that I realized first and foremost that I had put my identity in the wrong thing. My whole life was gay. All my whole community, everything about me, all my friends were gay. I lived in a gay apartment complex. I shopped at a gay Kroger. I went to a gay gym. So this identity aspect, I think is a really key point, which is, you know, what kind of drove me to write my book. But also this concept of this heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual paradigm that we've 
pigeonholed ourselves into and think that that's the only concept that we can think about when it comes to sexuality. And, um, and so kind of these things were ruminating while I was, uh, in, you know, in prison, got out of prison and, um, I felt called to ministry while I was in prison. So I applied to Moody. I mean, I had no, I never even heard of Bible colleges or Christian schools. All I knew was this school in Chicago, our hometown. And I applied to go there. I was actually accepted. Wow. Uh, yeah. Finished in 2005 and, uh, went on to get my master's in exegesis from Wheaton and I got my doctorate in ministry from Bethel Seminary. And, um, but it was in my first book, yeah, that I talked about my whole story that I wrote with my mom, but it introduced that concept of holy sexuality, which kind of, um, you know, shoots toward my, my new book. Well, let's talk about that. I find the title really provocative and interesting. You call it holy sexuality in the gospel, and you avoid terms like heterosexuality and homosexuality. Tell me about that. You know, it, it stemmed from my discontent with um, what exactly it was that God was calling us to. Because what I had heard um, years ago before I became a Christian was that to become a Christian, you have to become heterosexual. And there was almost this um, elevation or idolatry of heterosexuality. And as I read through Scripture, I realized, man, so many times the Bible condemned heterosexual sin. So if we if we are elevating heterosexuality as God's standard, that wouldn't make sense because clearly adultery is a sin between when a man cheats on his wife. Clearly sex before marriage is sin, and yet both of those are would be considered heterosexual. So I thought, well, what is it exactly and precisely that God is calling us to? So I started reading more and I read the Bible again and I read through and and it was, I just realized, well, there's only two, two ways that God calls us to. One, if an individual is unmarried, which, by the way, we all begin that way. I've never met anyone who was born married, so that's default. We're, we all are single at some point in our lives, and if you are, then how do you live in relation to your sexuality? That means to be faithful to God by being sexually abstinent. Or if individual is married, biblically married, uh, opposite sex marriage, um, then that means you be faithful to God by being faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. Only two ways. So I thought, man, there wasn't a term that was inclusive that included both of those ways, both of those paths. So I, in a sense, kind of wanted to, I wanted to deconstruct the homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual paradigm and create a biblical one that, I mean, I wasn't really recreating it. I was actually just kind of lifting it up and saying, this is God's standard for sexuality. It's either holiness or not, chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Well, I think it's a wonderful title, and it just gets to the heart that God is calling us to something higher than we often hear, even discussed in the culture, and sometimes even the church today. So, so let me ask you this question, Christopher. I'm c curious. Since you said there's two ways we can live faithfully before the Lord in terms of our relationships, do you think we have made an idol out of marriage at the expense mm. of singleness in the church? Yeah, you know, um, and, and, and I, I always have to really be careful because um, when I'm, in a sense, critiquing the way that the church has sort of uh, misunderstood uh, marriage, I want to be very clear. Marriage is good. Marriage is um, uh, an institution that God has called 
uh, where sex uh, can occur and uh, a male uh, a husband and wife. So that is good. And God created that wonderful institution, a holy institution. And yet sometimes we can go too far. And just like you said, I think at times we are definitely at risk of idolizing marriage. And and I, I'm going to step back uh, from kind of critiquing Christians and actually look at the world. You see the world definitely idolizes marriage. For for instance, uh, the, the huge push for marriage equality. Without marriage, the argument was that people had no purpose in life, that they had no essence, no identity, they had no value. That's not what marriage is meant to be. Marriage is not supposed to give us value or make us whole or even uh, provide intimacy or love. It can, it, those are ways in which uh, we can receive intimacy, and, and marriage is, a, is one context in which love can occur, but it is not the only context. Something that I often say is marriage does not have a monopoly on love mm. because oftentimes we, like I said, idolize marriage because I think one of the most deceptive forms of idolatry is when we worship something good. And, and that's definitely so. That's the world, how that does that. But in our Christian culture, we do that as well. I mean, I teach at Moody Bridal Institute and, you know, our, our, our kids, they definitely don't want to fall into the trap of, dating as the secular world does, and I commend them for that, and I definitely think we should not date as the world does. Um, however, we should not view, um, I think sometimes when we build relationships, we need to first just get to know each other, just be friends, like view each other as brothers and sisters in Christ before we jump into, is this the one? Because sometimes we... Um, uh, just because we're so intent on marriage as if that's our main goal in life. You, um, if you don't achieve that now or at a certain age or, you know, in college, then you're doomed or whatever it is. Um, and, and I think we need to, uh, view that, you know, God is in control and he, uh, and singleness is not a bad thing that, that, I mean, we, we can't forget that Jesus, our Lord himself, was unmarried. Uh, Paul was unmarried. Uh, so singleness is not a bad thing. Uh, you know, I, I one is not better than the other. Singleness is good, and marriage is good as well. That's such a beautiful way to put it, and I think this is the point Jesus makes in Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, that marriage is good and singleness is good. They both Amen. have tremendous value. And, you know, when Jesus asked about love, he, he says, they will know you by your love. Yeah. He doesn't say they'll know you by your marriage, as important as marriage <laughs> is. That's one right. kind of love. And when he talks about the greatest form of love, he says a friend will lay down his life for a friend. It's friendship. So yeah. I think this is a wonderful just warning you're giving to the church that marriage is vital and core. The Bible begins with the wedding, ends with the wedding. But we can overstate it at the expense of other forms of beautiful love within the church. Well, let, yes. me, let me ask you this. because So there's singleness and there's marriage. But a common argument that I hear pushback is that we simply cannot expect all gay people to be single. I mean, even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn. But you have people with same-sex attraction. We can't expect them to get married. Shouldn't we have some accommodation for the mental and emotional health of gay people to allow them to get married to the same sex? 
Yeah, and, and this is again where um, uh, I, I think um, I, I have a chapter that I call Spiritual Family. And I, I, I think the uh, what, what you find when you look from Genesis Revelation, uh, the Old Testament, the establishment of uh, really, if anything, as, as we look at intimacy and relationship in the Old Testament, the, the main focus is the family. Uh, so you have clans, you have tribes, you have your parents, you have your children, um, you pass on your name, lineage, land, all of that inheritance uh, from father to mother, and so a lot of emphasis on family. Then you move to the New Testament, and what you find is still there, there's an emphasis on, on family, but you have statements from Jesus like, who's my brother? Who is my father, mother? Who, you know, It's the one who obeys God, um, and, and you have uh, this this shift of focus that reemphasizes what the Old Testament is talking about. Why would this emphasis upon the family? It's because actually what we see see as the most important thing is not natural family, but actually spiritual family, which is the church. Mm. The relationships that we have actually that are bound by blood, the natural uh, family today, is actually temporary. The only really truly eternal relationships that we have are one that are bound by the blood of Christ. We are spiritual family, and that's the true family. So when we talk about intimacy and love and how that should be the, uh, expressed and found, the best context for that that the Bible communicates is actually found in the church. It elevates those relationships as supposed to be the most intimate, the most, um, uh, like that is where... Uh, that's the pinnacle of our, our, our form of human relationships. Um, Jesus even talks about in the Gospel of Matthew that marriage is temporary. There will be no marriage in heaven. So as we view, we think that marriage is uh, the pinnacle or the most deep form of intimacy. Uh, that's actually a secular understanding of relationships and intimacy. Uh, the, the most... Uh, pure and and lasting and eternal form of relationship that that we should realize that is expressed by New Testament writers are those relationships that are bound by the blood of Christ, that are bound uh, by brotherhood and sisterhood bounds in the body of Christ. So what do you think individuals and churches can do better to find a balance between singleness and marriage in light of what you just shared how scripture focuses on the family of God. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, we're doing a, a good job at proclaiming and defending traditional marriage, but what I very rarely hear, or I don't hear enough, um, is a, a good articulation of singleness and the goodness of singleness. I mean, mm. so I think, first of all, things that we should stop doing is uh, spending so much of our time trying to fix people up with each other. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and I always joke because, I mean, if you think about the word we're using, I want to fix you up with someone. I mean, that implies you need to be fixed to the problem of singleness. And um, so I think that's one of the things that sometimes, and, and another thing, uh, just because you have a godly young man and a godly young woman does not mean that they need to marry. You know, sometimes just because you know, you have two people that might not be God's will for them to be to marry one another. Um, I, I think that we need to help people live 
um, in what in the situation that they are in today. As a matter of fact, when we look at First Corinthians seven, I think a misunderstanding of the calling uh, that Paul talks about in the middle of First Corinthians seven, many people take that as Paul uh, talking about a call to celibacy, and and I'm I'm pretty careful not to use that word celibacy for many reasons. Uh, one, it's not a word found in the Bible. Not it's it's based on the Latin root um, of of the word, and I and actually as a matter of fact you don't even find that Latin root in the Latin Vulgate. Um, it's only in later uh, kind of Christian uh, church history that we find more uh, Roman Catholic. And also there's a I think there's a little bit of baggage that comes with the term celibacy that implies a chosen lifelong vocation, and certainly people can make that. Uh, uh, like a lifelong vocation, but I don't find that substantiated in First Corinthians seven or anywhere else in in the New Testament. Uh, but I like to talk about just the 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 condition of being single. That's a more accurate way to interpret uh, what Paul is talking about. The Greek word agamas, ah, meaning no, gamas being married, so not married. Um, and and so you know when Paul talks about in First Corinthians seven. Uh, you know, I, I think having, being able to communicate that better to, uh, what is Paul talking about there and, and, and communicating that well, uh, will, will help the church to, uh, to better minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not married and, and to help them to see that this is a good thing, that, that you can serve God. You don't have to wait. To something happens and you meet someone to begin serving God or to be to be whole, uh, to be a part of the church. I think a lot of singles uh, don't feel accepted in the church. So mm. honestly, I think a big responsibility rests not on the single individual to try to get plugged in or connected. I really think that the onus rests on the shoulders of couples and families in the church to be inviting and to uh, uh, include singles into the life of the family. And so that will mean to reach out, intentionally reach out to the single individual and invite them. I, I love the story um, that I heard of a good friend that uh, that had, was a, had a close relationship with this couple who had some kids, and uh, he was like an uncle to them, and, and uh, they basically like one one day they they handed this friend a uh, a key and said you know this is your home we wow. whatever you want come over and wow. that was a, a really powerful visual tangible way of saying you know what we are family and and i think when we truly truly begin living as the church we will i think all these problems of loneliness and, and depression will be mitigated. I, I, I think that's the key. And, and this is where I think a lot of these other kind of parachurch organizations in the past that kind of focus upon the, kind of the gate straight, um, and even uh, some of the uh, other approaches today that we see, you know, focusing upon the interpersonal relationships, miss a bit in that they miss the centrality of not only Christ, but the body of Christ. And mm. that's very kind of typical millennial, right? Millennial is, it's all about me. Right. I, you know, it's me and my friends. I don't need the church. And, and you see the, the, the harm in that. So what I wanted really in this, in, in this, uh, in my new book is not only to lift up the gospel, not only your know, forgiveness of sins, but the power to sin no more, that gospel that I'm talking about in the grace, but also to lift up the body of Christ, which I 
think, has really been lost in the conversation lately because we focus so much upon these interpersonal relationships at the expense of the local church. Because if you have friends, there's no headship. There could be, you know, there's no account, true accountability by an elder or a deacon or a pastor, and that could then lead into uh, trouble and, and problems. So that that's kind of purpose that I think would be really helpful to help, you know, churches to be able to better minister to the married individual and to the single individual as well. Well, I think that's really helpful. It's biblical, but it's also important you referenced millennials to realize that people are getting married later less people are marrying and there's more singles the issue of same-sex attraction totally aside than ever before so the church has to come to grips with this tell me your thoughts uh you have a little section on mixed orientation marriages obviously the idea of somebody with same-sex attraction or both but still marrying somebody of the opposite sex so talk about mixed orientation marriages and then you ask this question is sexual desire a prerequisite for marriage. I love your take on this. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, I, I, so I know of many individuals, um, you know, who, who have same-sex attractions, um, and they do marry. Um, and, and I guess I, I would, um, I, I'm all about terminology, you know, Sean, I mean, words yeah. matter, right? So, um, I, I'm, Definitely, I know individuals who, uh, many individuals um, who continue to have same-sex attractions, uh, but they are married to someone of the opposite sex, and they have, uh, you know, from, of course, I don't, I don't know everything, but from what I see, uh, happy, uh, faithful, successful marriage, and they're open about their struggles with their wife uh, or husband, and... Um, but uh, but sometimes, you know, I, I, I kind of struggle with the terminology of mixed orientation marriage because then I think sometimes people will just say, I'm just married. <laughs> right. Um, and, I, and I have these same-sex attractions. Other people will say, I am gay, but I, I'm in a mixed orientation marriage. So that get, kind of gets to the terminology aspect. But um, definitely, I, I think – so honestly, a lot of what my thought process came about for my own experience first, that sometimes, you know, how – we start from our own experience, and then we uh, help, uh, you know, look at God's word to help us then interpret our own experience and to to shape what you know, kind of what we're focusing on. You know, I have HIV, so I realize that, and I'm open to marriage. But I realize that if I do ever get married, um, sexual intimacy is going to look very different. Sure. Um, there will be limitations for for me if I ever marry, um, and uh doesn't mean that uh there can be no intimacy it just has to look different which then challenged me because I, I i then had to think about well if i ever do get married what what would it be that my wife would want and having studied sexuality for quite you know many years i realized male sexuality and female sexuality is quite different that's right and i would kind of generally say and of course i'm assuming this because i'm not married but I'm, I would be assuming, in, in general, uh, usually the men would want more of the physical intimacy, and the women, uh, they could do with it or do without it. I don't, you know, it's not a, as, as much of a need for them. What they would want is more the affection. And um, uh, so I, you know, I had to think this through and thought, you know, if if I were to get married, 
and there's ever sexual intimacy, I have to take what Paul says, that actually the sex part should really be for the other. You know, we think about it the other way around. You know, sex is for me. I need to get pleased. I need to get my needs met. Uh, but the way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7, it's actually flipping it around. You know, my body is, you know, my, my spouse's and my spouse's body, you know, is in, you know, so giving that understanding of that sexual intimacy. So then that led me to um, also realizing, you know, how important or essential is uh, erotic desire for success in marriage. And I came to the conclusion that I don't think that it is uh, the bedrock of a successful marriage. I think mm. it can be, I think it's, it, it's good. Um, it's not a bad thing, but I don't think that it is essential to a successful marriage. Because I, I mean, I think I've even heard people say, oh, your sex, bad, sex life is bad in marriage. Uh, well, then there's something wrong with your marriage, and, and I, I don't, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. For example, mm. um, people who've been married 50, 60 years, yes, they might have had a more active sex life when they were younger, uh, but at this point, it's, you know, if they do have it, that would be quite the, you know, unusual thing. Um, and even when I talk to couples who have been married for so long, I love to ask them this question: What's you know, the secret, what, what, how, you know, why have you been successful and, and had such a happy marriage for such a long time? And I've never heard them say the sex is great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's usually something else. And, uh, you know, she loves me unconditionally and he understands me, he listens to me. And so I, I've just come to the conclusion that um, I don't think that sex is as essential to getting married as many of us make of it. Well, that, that's really interesting. One of the things my dad has often said to me, he said, son, if you're in a marriage and you work on the closeness and the intimacy and the friendship, the sex kind of takes care of itself as an expression of one way of the depth of the relationship that is there. So I think you're bringing really some good, good balance and perspective here. We got time for maybe one or two more. You have a section where you talk about how same-sex attraction is related to the fall. Could you talk about that, and why is this important? Yeah, it's so important. So um, I, I begin my book, obviously, talking about uh, identity that, that we talked about earlier, um, you know, and then I'm, I'm kind of building this and saying, you know, sexuality should not be who we are, but how we are. And, and that is why kind of it's important, the terms that we use. Um, and, I, and I know, uh, you know, uh, there's discussions about that and the terminology we use, and I know individuals, you know, say that this is not, you know, about, who, you know, who I am. And I appreciate when, you know, when they say that, I, I only struggle with uh, how I look at the world. And the majority of people, when they use that term being gay, I think it is, it is more talking about kind of an ontological reality more than just an experiential reality. Uh, so if, if sexuality should not be who we are, then what, who are we? Uh, and so I build into, you know, talking about theological anthropology, because Honestly, we can't understand human sexuality unless we first begin with theological anthropology. So I did that. Talk about the Imago Dei and then the doctrine of sin. And why is the doctrine of sin so important to understanding same-sex attractions? Uh, because, uh, first of all, when people say, um, you know, I've been this way or I've had this for as long as I remember, and then people will jump to the conclusion, oh, well, then that just must be you know, who you are, and then there's nothing wrong. When we say that, we forget about uh, just a really orthodox understanding of the doctrine of sin. 
the fall occurred, Genesis 3, and because of the fall uh, and the sin of Adam, uh, all of creation has been in disarray. I mean, you know, Paul even talks about in Romans that all died in Adam. Uh, and so, but then it's all that we all live in Christ, uh, you know, faith in Christ. Uh, so having that understanding that it's the fall, and then uh, because of the fall, not only uh, do we have uh, imputed guilt, but we also, um, our, our nature has been distorted, which that means that even though the image of God hasn't been lost, but it's been distorted, uh, polluted, some people will say. And um, that then leads to our understanding of same-sex attraction. So same-sex attraction, is that a result of the fall, or is that a reflection of the image of God? And as we look at, uh, you know, Scripture, Genesis, Revelation, and the six passages, uh, uh, you know, not, not only in Leviticus, but also Romans, Genesis, and uh, First Corinthians, and First uh, Timothy, talking about same-sex sexual behavior as being sin, then that leads us to realize that uh, the desire to to sin, to to engage in same-sex behavior, sexual behavior, is sin, and uh, and that then helps us understand that then those same-sex sexual desires are rooted in our sinful desire that then comes from the fall. So I'm kind of like drawing this line back, which then helps us to better understand. Uh, kind of the origination and the source, and, and in a sense, the cause of these same-sex sexual desires. Um, and, and if you kind of notice, I, I switched talking about same-sex attraction to same-sex desires, and part of my reason is there's even discussion about same-sex attractions, and is that all bad? Is it sinful or not? And, and a lot of this confusion, uh, I think, has to do with terminology, right? Words mm. matter. And this is why I've, I, I tried to kind of do away with the ambiguity, uh, because there's a, there's a lot of ambiguity uh, today, and tried to stick to more biblical terms where, uh, so there wouldn't be as much debate. I talked about same-sex uh, temptation, same-sex desires, and I broke that down to sexual desires, romantic desires, and more of the platonic desires uh, that I kind of laid out in my book. And the way I land is that the sexual desires, same-sex sexual desires, same-sex Romantic desires are rooted in our sin nature, whereas same-sex, more platonic desires are not rooted in our sin nature, but I would also not root them in our sexuality. Why? Because if we did, that would make everyone gay. I, I uh. think that's one mistake of people uh, who say, well, you know, my same-sex attractions, there's good that can come out of it because it helps me be a better friend. And and I I don't agree with that because if we broaden out the definition of sex, same-sex attraction so far, we would make it so wide that every individual would be gay. I mean, my mother wants to be good friends with another woman that would not make her lesbian. You know, I think this is such a helpful point as you talk about same-sex attraction in the fall because you point out in the book that – it, this is the one sin in which we blame parents if their kids have same-sex attraction. Yeah. You know, you yeah. weren't present enough or the dad was involved or they were sexually abused. And sometimes that's the case, but many times it's not. And yeah. tying it to the fall really can just relieve parents and say, look, there's bigger factors going on here. The question is, how are you going to love your kids regardless yeah. And you just do that so well in your book. Christopher, unfortunately, we are running out of time. There's so many more <laughs> questions I want to ask you. Your book at the end, we didn't even get to. You have a whole section on practical guidelines 
for conversations and outreach with LGBTQ people. You talk about how should you respond when a friend opens up to you. And what I love is that you are wedded and committed to scripture and the gospel, which is so important to us at Biola and on this podcast. And yet you speak with grace and with love for people. So I'm grateful for your voice. And I really hope our audience will pick up your book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. It'll benefit them tremendously. Thanks for coming on, Christopher. Thanks for having me on, Sean. God bless you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Christopher Yuan, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.